Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and make sure to visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. Today's guest is Lori Goldstein, former journalist and current author and editor who has a bachelor's in journalism and previously worked for technology publications in the East Coast Silicon Valley city of Boston. Lori joined me today to talk about how the query process actually works, even though we all know how painful it is. Killer scorpions, giant crocodiles, and magical amulets. Ancient Egypt is nothing like Jagger Jones imagined. When he and his little sister fall 3,000 years back in time, they must solve supernatural riddles and save the royal family. If they pull it off, Jagger might return to Chicago a hero. Jagger Jones and the Mummy's Ink by Milena Evans. Listeners are always curious about how my guests got their agent. So the query trenches are a really tough place to be, but I've found through talking to writers over years and years that the majority of my guests on both the blog and the podcast found their agents by writing those cold queries. So what about you? I am fitting right in with the majority of the people that you've talked to. Uh, I've been fortunate in my career to have two agents. I'm, I'm on my second agent right now, and I found both of my agents through the query trenches. The first time, it still was through the query trenches, but it wasn't for the book that became my first book, Becoming Gin. I had written an adult book many problems with it. One of those was I didn't know how to write a query. Mm. And I was fortunate to get help from some writers online, people that were very generous on Twitter and offered to read my query and give feedback on it. And without their help, I probably wouldn't have gotten an agent because I really just had no idea how to put that query together. Mm-hmm. So when I was querying that first book, that I had written. I'd finally gotten to a shape where I thought I could could query it. I wrote that query and I started to get hits on it. Uh, unfortunately, no one offered representation on it, but the agent who became my first agent had really liked my writing, said very complimentary things and said, send me your next book. So I did. I finished Becoming Gin and I wrote the query for it and I put it out there to you know, a wide array of, of agents. And one of them was that first agent who requested my first book. And she became my agent. There were, were other people in the mix, but we had a great connection. So then the, the next time when my agent and I mutually decided to, to part ways, she was no longer going to be representing a kid lit and I was continuing to write in the young adult genre. So I found myself needing another agent and I did it again through the query trenches. By that point, I had been fortunate to meet a lot of other published authors and speak with them about their agents and what they liked about them and not liked about them. And I got many referrals from from friends, which mm-hmm. is always a great thing. And I think the thing people think that's how you get an agent, you have to network it, you have to do it that way. And I did 
send queries with referrals and I sent ones I would just call cold calls into the slush pile. And the woman who became my agent was from the slush pile. And it's amazing to me that the slush, it works. People hate it. I understand why they hate it. I was there for 10 years. I know that when I was a aspiring writer and I would see published writers saying, don't knock the query process. It works. That's how I got my agent. I'm sitting there going, well, that's easy for you to say. I was querying for 10 years before I got an agent. It was a decade that I have four novels that I queried and were rejected continuously. A lot of that is because I didn't know how to write a query or a book. I would just become so angry when I would see people saying the query process works. You just have to do it right. And I'm like, well... I don't like you because you're successful. You know what I mean? Um, And then now I find myself in that same position where I'm telling aspiring writers, look, I know it sucks, but the truth is that it does work. Even though it feels like the doors are closed and the windows are shuttered and the curtains are drawn, you can get in there. You just have to write a good query. And I want everyone to know that when I say those things, I say it as someone that was just tortured for 10 years in those query trenches. I mean, I remember, I know what it's like. And I'm still telling you that it does work. I got my agent through cold queries. I like what you're saying, too, about having referrals. It is a business where knowing people helps. Any business is that way. But you do not have to. I tell people I am a farmer's daughter from a tiny town in Ohio. I did not know anyone. I had zero references. I sent a cold query into the slush pile and I got an agent that sold my book to HarperCollins and now I am a full-time writer and it is because I took the time to learn how to write a query and write it well. And I also like what you're saying about finding people online to help you with that. I was a member of and a moderator for a long time of a uh, forum for aspiring writers called Agent Query Connect. It's not as active as it used to be, but... 10 years ago, that was a really great place to be if you were looking for people, other aspiring writers, and also people a few rungs ahead of you on the ladder to help you with that query. So you mentioned Twitter. Were there any other places that you looked online for help with that query writing? When I was querying, it was around the time of 2012, 2013. And at that time, we had some very unfortunate natural disasters. I mm-hmm. believe that was Hurricane Sandy at that time. And a couple of other things had happened. And what happens around these unfortunate incidents and still happens now is often there are auctions that mm-hmm. writers get together and sometimes there are agents involved as well to raise money for to help support the cause. And a lot of times people will give away critiques mm-hmm. and query critiques. And that was something I remember being a part of my learning process was participating in some of those auctions, donating some money, which was great. And, and then in return, I was able to get feedback from other published writers as well as agents. And I made it a priority to get that feedback on my query because I knew that was where I really needed to get the right work done. And I really needed it to shine to represent the book in the best way. And that was a great resource for me. And I know those kinds of things still exist. And follow agents, follow editors, follow published writers on Twitter. There is a lot of good advice out there. I mean, Twitter can be a quagmire sometimes. But if you are active on Twitter, you can find a lot of good advice on there. I also want to add that I do free query critiques on the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog every 
Saturday. It's called the Saturday Slash. Those are free. So if you want to check that out, go to writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click on editorial services and that will pop up. And that is free. Coming up, Lori's first book series, writing lost leaders like prequel novellas and pre-order campaigns. Are they worth it? Also, creating swag that works. Danny and Fiona were born in the same hospital in Belfast, Northern Ireland, but long after the troubles ended, a 40-foot peace wall still separates their Catholic and Protestant neighborhoods. Chance, a love of the band Fading Stars, and the desire to escape their families brings them together, but one ugly truth may tear them apart. All the Walls of Belfast by Sarah Carlson is a powerful story about how the stones our parents threw in the past make ripples in our futures. So let's talk about your first book. That was Becoming Jin. It is part of an urban fantasy series that deals with the magical world of Jin. It was followed by a sequel and then a short story prequel. The short story is free and it's available as a download. When you are creating content like that, Is that a strategic marketing choice? And more importantly, does it work? It was absolutely a strategic marketing choice. I had seen other authors doing short stories. Sometimes they were part of pre-order campaigns, especially when you have a series and you have the sequel coming out to offer a short story in the world or maybe deleted content or something like that. I had seen a lot of other authors doing that at the time. And I said, well, you know, I love these characters. I'd love to write more about them. And why don't I do the same thing and, and create some extra bonus content? And it was something I could have just put on my website and pointed to. And I decided with Macmillan's approval uh, that we could make it a short story and have it as a freebie online that people could download. Whether you're an existing fan of the series and you want more or you're kind of browsing through the free content on Amazon and come across this story and see if maybe it whets your appetite for the full series. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a marketing decision in order to write it. I had a lot of fun doing it. It was fun to return to the girls and put them a couple of years earlier. So it's set a couple of years before Becoming Gin Begins. And I had a lot of fun doing it. Does it work? I don't think it works. Okay, okay. I, I don't have hard numbers because you can't get hard numbers for ebooks in this free category. At least in, in my current situation, I can't get hard numbers for it. But I can see the Amazon rank and you can compare that to mm-hmm. the books rank and, and look at it that way. And also, you know, look at numbers on Goodreads and how many ads it has on, on Goodreads. So there are some metrics that you can kind of use. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it gave a bump to the series. So that is the honest truth. I have met people at festivals or at book events asking if there was going to be another book in the Becoming Jin world. And I said, no, but there is this free little short story. And they were excited to get, you know, another glimpse into mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. So for that purpose, it's enticing readers to go back to the story world and read it when they're existing fans. But I do not see it as a way to garner new fans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and that's something that we're all still looking for, that magical key that brings people in and grabs their attention and free makes people click but the audience that you are attracting when you use the word free as an advertising or marketing ploy typically is not the audience that is going to shell out money for a book 
Yeah, exactly. That that was some of the problems that some authors were finding by putting content on Wattpad, which I think is just a great resource for young writers and new writers and teen writers. Yep. I have an author friend who put in a complete story novel, uh, you know, week by week, uploaded chapters, hoping that that was going to drive content to her existing books. And for the exact reason you said, it, it did not. She had a lot of reads, but there was absolutely no correlation to the books that were published because right. if someone is looking to read in a certain way and a certain format and that format being free, it's not a good translation to purchasing a book. No, It doesn't mean it's not worthwhile if you'd love doing it and you like to get different kind of content out there that perhaps you wouldn't publish with your, your publisher. Strict marketing, it's a much more involved and something to really be thinking about uh, to, to understand what works and what doesn't. It's very true. The free audience is out there and they are ravenous, but they typically are not going to pay for their content. There is so much content out there. There's a, You can read for free for the rest of your life if you want to. But, you know, one thing that I have done for my listeners, when you are talking about marketing and you have something that you're offering like that for free, it's called a loss leader. And what I have done is created a short story that is tied into my newsletter. And so if you sign up for my monthly newsletter, you get the free short story. And that has boosted the newsletter subscriptions. So I'm accessing that free audience by offering them a short story. And then they will get my newsletter and hopefully something in the newsletter will catch their attention perhaps draw them into something more, or at the very least, I use the newsletter to advertise when I have a Kindle Daily Deal or a 99 cent offer on one of my books, whatever the case may be. And maybe some of that audience will translate into a $1.99 deal or something like that. Something else that I want to add is that when we're talking about marketing, a lot of people use giveaways to drive adding uh, people or getting people to sign up for things like a mailing list or subscribing to a podcast or a blog. I have found that when you do a giveaway, you are getting the same audience. You're getting that free audience. So you might get a sudden glut of followers on Twitter or additions to your mailing list, but they're just there for that free whatever you're giving away. And then over time, they're going to trickle away from you. So they're going to unfollow you on Twitter so that they can follow you again with the same account when you have the next giveaway. So it's actually not benefiting you at all. And then the other thing, especially with a mailing list, once you reach a certain level of subscribers, you are paying. I use MailerLite. I just switched over from MailChimp. And I started using MailerLite. And right now I've got room for about, I think, maybe 500 or 1,000 more before I get bumped up and I have to pay a higher rate because my subscriber list is decent size. It's about 1,500 right now. But I did a giveaway, a very large giveaway, twice in this past year. I did one in December with another group, a large group of YA writers. And then I did one in March with a group of sci-fi and fantasy writers. And I got a ridiculous amount, something like 2,500 new subscribers each time. It was insane. Wow. And then the next time I sent out a newsletter... I had like a thousand people unsubscribe immediately as soon as the newsletter went out. And then people forget. I mean, that's the other thing. They forget that they signed up. So I would send out a newsletter and then I would get, um, you know, the feedback, the stats on my site. 
People were marking it as spam. People were marking it as I didn't sign up for this. And it's like, no, you did. You just don't remember doing it. And now I've got like a flag on my account that I'm a spammer. So it's something that I have definitely rethought about how I want to market and who I want to market to when you're working with giveaways, because Mm. you are attracting a pretty large audience there that may or may not actually be interested in what you have to say. They just want what you're giving away. And when you are paying for their email information through a service like MailerLite, you're paying to have them on your list. You don't want to be paying people that aren't ever going to open your emails or going to unsubscribe immediately or are going to mark you as a spammer because they forgot they signed up. It's such a difficult tightrope to walk because you want to grow that list really fast and giveaways are a great way to do it, but it may not be the most actual productive for a healthy and interactive list. I agree. And and I think the one problem is when even in the time that I've started, you know, before publication, through publication and, and awaiting my next book being out, the the market of authors and especially the market of authors promoting themselves on social media and on Twitter and now on Instagram, I feel like has grown exponentially. Mm-hmm. And early on doing a pre-order campaign or doing a giveaway, you seem to be engaging more real readers or bloggers or people who really had an interest in the books. Mm-hmm. And with the proliferation of more people entering and more people marketing this way, that has gotten worse for the author and being able to promote to their actual readers through giveaways and and through promotions and retweet and follow kind of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like it's very different now than it was back in 2014 or 2015. Very. I used to host a giveaway every Friday on my blog. I would have a giveaway. The entrance would be just like you're saying, follow me on Twitter, subscribe to me on YouTube, you know, all those things. And I would get like a healthy it didn't really matter what the book was. I would get healthy entry numbers. And now it's like 14, 20. Right. So many people doing it that you've got to have a book that everybody wants. Like you have to have the eighth Harry Potter book. You know, right. it's like you've got to be giving away something that people are going to beat each other over the head for. Or you have to be part of a large group giveaway where somebody is going to be receiving 15 books, you know, something right. like that in order to actually get attention. You're also totally right about pre-order campaigns. I started doing some um, just kind of experimenting I think I got maybe 12. I mean, it was just, it wasn't worth it. It's just not worth it. The effort that you put into it, the organization, everything that you do, there's so much free content and there's so many extra special bonus lists and things that you can be a part of that it's so hard to make your voice heard in the echo chamber anyway. The amount of effort you're going to put into something like a pre-order campaign or a giveaway, it's going to get lost and it's not going to be worth your time. That's my current opinion. I agree. And I'm actually in the middle of a pre-order campaign right now for for my new book, Screen Queens. I did a pre-order with Becoming Gin. That was quite successful. And it was a lot of work. It was a giveaway of gift cards. It was a reader and writer pre-order campaign. So Mm -hmm. if you're a reader, you could be entered to win gift cards to various places. If you were a writer, you were able to enter and you automatically got either a query or a first page critique if you pre-ordered. And then I picked one person and I did a full manuscript critique for that. Nice. That's a nice So um, that was a lot of time to put together and quite some time after the fact because I... 
I forget my exact numbers, but between the two, I know I had at least three or 325 pre-orders wow. and they were probably split equally between the editing and the gift card giveaway. Mm-hmm. And so that was a lot of work after the fact for me to edit all these queries, first pages, and then a full manuscript critique for free. That's something that I don't even know if would still work now. I didn't have the time to kind of do that kind of promotion again. And my pre-order campaign now, uh, it's just started. My expectations are reasonable along the lines of what you're saying. But I think the benefit for me, at least, is it was content to put in my newsletter. Mm-hmm. And my newsletter is made up of readers and librarians and teachers who signed up that I've met at places. But it's also a lot of family, friends, older acquaintances who wanted to be updated on my books and my book going on, but they're not actually that active on social media. Mm. So they needed a way to let, to be aware that I have a new book coming out. And so that was content for my newsletter to kind of reach that segment that I know will want to hear from me and will want to know I have a new book. So it was a combination of let me run the pre-order campaign, get it out there, but also have content and have a way of reaching a segment of audience that I don't have another way to reach. So depending on where, where you are, you can evaluate if something like that is worth it or you just do the newsletter announcement without the pre-order campaign attached. That, that's an, uh, a way to do that as well. That's super smart. (laughs) I'm impressed. Back to your becoming gin pre-order giveaway. You said you mentioned you were giving gift cards away to readers. How much money were you investing then in gift cards? You know, I I should have looked back on it. I don't remember specifically. I think I had a variety of a couple of in in like the $15 and $25. And I think my biggest one was $100. Mm. So it was certainly probably $200. Wow. So you had not only your time with the uh, critiquing, but you also had quite a bit of your own money wrapped up in the pre-order campaign. Yes, definitely. It did help with my pre-orders. The question is how many of those people would have pre-ordered without the giveaway? Right. I don't know. That's something we'll, we'll never know. So it's an, a decision that each author has to make. Marketing's there, there a pot is, shot. It really is. And you know what works for one book might not work for another. One thing I did want to say that was actually a, a helpful marketing tool that, again, I was not used as much early on when I did it with Becoming Gin, and I've seen it a bit more now. First chapter booklets, and a lot of times publishers are putting these together for their biggest lead titles. They'll put a little package together. It's a, like a pamphlet. Sometimes they're smaller size of the first chapter or the first couple of chapters of a book that they send either to bookstores or they have out for promotional purposes. Mm -hmm. And I created one with a designer of the first chapter of Becoming Gin. The first chapter uh, had a good first page. It it ended on a nice little cliffhanger at the end of the first chapter. It was about eight pages when it was laid out. It had the cover on the front and information about me and and blurbs and things on, on the back. And that was something I paid for. It is not an inexpensive item of Mm -hmm. swag, if that's what you want to call it. But I found that was one of my most successful marketing efforts. I had gone to a lot of festivals. I did a lot of bookstores. I did a lot of events with fellow authors that we had books coming out at the same time. And uh, you're sitting there at a table and someone might be buying the book of the author next to you, but they're not buying yours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they might only have money to buy one book that day, but they're interested in yours. Or maybe they just don't think your book is interesting for them. When you have the chance to hand them something that has actual content, not just a bookmark, mm-hmm. but they can take that home, read through, and that you might entice people who ordinarily weren't going to buy your book. I've even been at festivals where I've handed it out at a, at a table 
and someone comes back later with the book that they read the first chapter and they wanted to buy the book. So that's a tool that I feel like was actually worthwhile to do and to spend the money on. That's a good tip. I like it. I've never done that myself, but I've seen a lot of people do it. Maybe I'll try that for my next one. I like the idea. Lastly, the inspiration for Lori's next release involving girls and tech, her editing services, and where to find Lori online. You mentioned Screen Queens, which is your next release. It is pitched as a teen girls invade Silicon Valley story. So what made you interested in telling this type of tale? I have to say probably the first thing is that I am married to a huge tech lover. So he infuses that into my life, whether it's appliances that turn on and off uh, voice activated or the latest new device or gadget that he wants. Or the side benefit of that is when I have computer problems, he's always around to fix them. So mm-hmm. it's a good thing that he's uh, this, this into tech and this tech savvy. I kind of developed my own interest in, in the tech world and One of my favorite podcasts to to listen to, aside from yours, is called Startup. It detailed starting a podcasting company. It was very meta. But the second season of that podcast was about three women starting a dating app. And it followed them from the time that they were coming up with the idea through launching it, through going to uh, what's called YC, which is a technology incubator, very, very coveted place to go. And it followed their whole process to the unfortunate end of the company dissolving and the founders leaving. Listening to that podcast really affected me because these women put so much into this and what they were finding when they reached the stage where they were going after funding was offers of funding offers to invest in their company and take this app that they've been building to to the next level, often came with an invitation to drinks or Mm. dinner. And these were things that they were talking about openly on this podcast. Their male counterparts in the tech field were not experiencing these same things. Yeah. So that was one of the things that really kind of stuck in my mind as I was thinking about what I would like to write and, and kind of the, the story I'd like to tell and the message I'd like to tell and translating that down to an, an audience for young adults. It got me really thinking about my own experiences with science and math and technology. And I was always the, the English major. I loved English and writing and down through high school, junior high. Science and math were never my strong suit. But as I thought about it, what's interesting is that was okay with my parents. It Mm -hmm. was never expected that I would do great in math or science. When my SAT scores came and they were very, you know, low on that side, but sky high on English, that was okay. Mm -hmm. And I never was encouraged nor had the confidence to kind of pursue anything like that. Yet now as an adult, kind of into this tech world and learning a little coding on my own to do my website or things like that, I realize it's something I probably would have been interested in if I had either the encouragement or the confidence to pursue that. Mm. So all of this kind of was swarming in my head and came out in these three girls who have very different backgrounds, but are all very much into tech, into coding, and into wanting to create a new app or a new business or found something that is going to have a significant effect on the the world that we live in now, which is obviously very tech-driven. So that's kind of how what influenced me putting this story together. That's fascinating. I love what you're saying 
about the inferred sexism, of course, in technology, also in, of course, we all know the gaming world and Mm -hmm. math. My father, he is a farmer. We're ninth generation farmers over here. But he did teach math for a period of time in the 70s. When he graduated from college, he graduated with a degree in mathematics education. And he did teach math for quite a while and then ended up just deciding that farming was where he fit best and has, of course, been doing that for his entire life. And that's not Mm -hmm. a profession that you ever retire from, I can tell you. Right. (laughs) It's so interesting to me now as an adult because I struggle with math. I'm just... It's just not there for me. You're talking about those tests, like your graduation tests and all those things. And and I was the same. It's like I was happy to pass my math ones, you know, and everything else. I would be like, yeah, you're ready to go to college. As an adult, I look back at my dad helping me with my math homework and just being like, Mindy, you can do this. Mm. You can do this. Like never, ever referring to my gender as being an impediment, never ever inferring that there was a reason why I couldn't. I can appreciate that so much now as an adult because it's like he was, you know, a teacher in the 70s. It wasn't exactly the least sexist time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, you know, that was never anything. He never ever referred to my gender being an issue in my math in capabilities. Good for your dad. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. I love the title, Screen Queens. It's great, and I can't take credit for it. There was a period of about two months of my editor and I going back and forth with ideas and Mm -hmm. lists, and and nothing was was hitting. There was a couple we floated Girls Club for a little while because a play on the the idea of Boys Boys Club. Club. Yeah. And as we were kind of talking about that and I was testing it out on, on some friends, girls, teens of the age of who will be reading the book and they had no idea what we were talking about. Yep. <laughs> and I realized that's not translating. I just don't know anymore. The team at Razorbill got together and had several meetings to come up with a title. So I give them all the credit for it. They worked hard um, and they came up with something great. I find it encouraging that teens today don't know what boys club means. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's awesome. You were talking before about your giveaway and your pre-order campaign for becoming gin and how you offered editing services. That is something that you offer still through your website. You have a background in journalism and you have been an instructor at Grub Street in Boston. So all of that obviously boosts your editing credentials. So tell us a little bit about the services that you offer and where listeners can go to find that. I've kind of come 100% full circle. And one of the things I love to do most is help people with their queries. I have worked as a intern at a small local children's publisher in the Boston area. And through that, I've, I was reading the slosh that was part of my job. And I saw a lot of the same mistakes I would make in queries and, and things that could have been done better combined with working as a pitch wars mentor, the big contest pitch wars. I was a mentor for three years. And over the course of that, I have read, and I'm not exaggerating, 500 queries. I've given feedback on almost all of them because as a mentor in Pitchwares, I said, if I'm going to do this, I want to help people like people helped me. And so I would give feedback on everybody's query. So through that, I've really kind of gotten this down of like what a query needs to do and most more importantly, what a query shouldn't do. 
So query editing has become one of my favorite things to do. And I offer what I call a submissions package. That's your query, uh, your synopsis, and your first page to kind of get those things that get right in front of the agent right away in the best shape possible. And because I think it's important to grow and not just get feedback once because you don't know if you've implemented it in a way that is working. So I always offer two passes on that. So you, so you get an edit on each of those pieces twice. So you get to see if the way you've reworked it is resonating. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite things to do the submission package. And I also do manuscript editing for all genres, uh, including adult. I just finished a spy thriller. I've done several memoirs and I do copy editing, line editing, or big picture editing. If somebody wants all three, I do all three. Uh, and I have packages for, for each of those. And that's right on my website of lauriegoldsteinbooks.com editing services. That is awesome. Especially the submissions package offering. That is incredible. It's great. And people really, they love the fact that they get to see if what they've done works. And I will say by the time we get to the, that final second pass, people are well on the way to having like a great query. It's great to see people be able to hone in on really what their story is about just by asking a few key targeted questions that no matter how many queries you read, if you read success stories online, you read queries on Writer's Digest, I believe, has queries that have gotten agents. It's hard to apply it to your own story because mm -hmm. we're so close to our own stories mm -hmm. and talking about what are the stakes and consequences that really must come through in a query. You know them in your head and they're not translating to the page. But when somebody from the outside is pointing that out, you can see it and you can get to it in a way that would be really hard to on your own. Absolutely. It's called manuscript blindness. And exactly. I love that. Yeah. It is the truth. <laughs> I have been putting together a new website for myself. I've been going back through my appearances and my guest posts and my interviews that I've done all over the internet. I will see an interview or a guest post that I did in 2013 and there's a typo like in the first right. line and I'm like, oh my God, you know, and it's so <laughs> hilarious to me because I had read it so many times in 2013 that I didn't yeah. see it. And in 2019, yeah. I go back and I'm like, boom, oh my God, there's right a typo there. in the first line. Sometimes you need that either a space, a long period of time to be able to get the uh, distance to actually see the words. And then also, of course, just fresh eyes, fresh eyes. If you don't want to wait six years to make sure you got it right, just, you know, fresh eyes. Hire Lori. Yeah, yeah. fresh eyes are really important. Uh, another tip that one of my journalism professors had said was when you're trying to do that final edit on something, read it backwards. Yep. So then you're reading every word individually for itself. Yep. And your, your brain has this tendency to insert missing words or, you know, go over that typo that you couldn't see. But if you read it backwards, you've tricked your brain into looking at it a different way. Mm -hmm. And you'll often find mistakes that way. So it's hard to read a full manuscript backwards, but you can definitely do it with a query letter. I have heard that before that that's a copy editing trick to read it yeah. backwards and it'll really help yeah. you catch those little mistakes. I'm working right now on putting together just a little a loss leader to get people to sign up to follow the blog. I'm putting together a little quick printable of, you know, how to write a synopsis. I was just kind of scrolling through it was storyfix.com and looking at some oh. of the information that they had out there and there was a typo in highly trafficked article, Beat Sheet 101, writing up a beat sheet and explain what a beat sheet is and using bulleted points. And then it said, 
your bulleted points, once you begin to flesh them out, will quickly become a synopsis. But it said, it will quickie become a synopsis. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's, they didn't mean quickie. That's not what they mean. Yeah. <laughs> it, just the particular font that they were using, that L, yeah. that lowercase L was just lost. And I right. wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't been um i highlighted the paragraph you know i like to copy it so that i could Mm. post and then of course credit them because i copied and pasted it and went into a different font i saw it right away and i was like oh my gosh look at that right so i've heard that that's another trick too that you can if you change the font it can help you see things uh, definitely a, a trick and you can also do it if you if you have a device a tablet or a kindle or something i always read my manuscript in different formats. So I read it on screen, I read it printed, and I read it on my Kindle, and you'll see things each way that you wouldn't have seen in another format. Yep, that's absolutely true. Last question. Tell us about what is up next for you. What are you working on? And tell us also where listeners can find you online. I am working on uh, my next young adult novel that I cannot say all that much about, but I am on deadline for it. Okay. So that probably tells you a little something that is going to happen with it, but I cannot really give details. It follows in the same vein of the idea of Screen Queens, of capturing something that is timely, putting it into the world of young adults. I get to use some of my journals and background, uh, and we were looking at politics and the intersection with the media, with social media and journalism, what journalism was and what journal journalism is becoming. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the little the little nugget, but I can't share details as of yet. Hope, no worries. Hopefully soon. So my website, uh, which I just redid, so go check it out and let me know what you think, is lauriegoldsteinbooks.com. And I am most often these days on Instagram, was a huge lover of Twitter, and I still enjoy the format. But with less time, I'm finally, I only have time to really focus on one. So while I, I can be found on Twitter, not as often, Instagram at Lori Goldstein Books is where I am. And I think it's partly when you're so in this world of words, you need a, a break and the visual break of, of Instagram, whether it's posting my own pictures or reviewing the, the people I follow, is actually this nice mental break to go into a different kind of creative world that I'm really kind of enjoying lately. That's very cool. That's a wonderful way to think of it. I like that a lot. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.